I think a good place to start this podcast is to say that even though hiring mistakes was something that I wish I had learned not to do, I've never seen any company, any entrepreneur, any organization not make them. And as much as I've learned over the years and as much as I'm reducing the number of hiring mistakes that I make, I have never ever achieved a state where I don't make hiring mistakes. So this podcast is not around getting to a state of zero mistakes. It's around reducing the number of hiring mistakes that you make. As we consider the growth of our businesses, at the heart of this growth is who we hire. This episode goes into some specific things we can do to accomplish what Alon has just described, reducing the number of hiring mistakes we make. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and this is a Razor's Edge podcast. So let's just talk about the consequence of hiring the wrong people. And hiring the wrong people is generally a function of two things. It's a function of performance, that you thought they could do something at a certain pace or rate, and they don't or can't. And the second is alignment, is that they are very good at what they do, but they are incredibly disruptive in your business and create all sorts of other consequences, political consequences, making other people unproductive, unhappy, and yet they are performing. And those are actually very difficult decisions to make as to whether you feel that you should get rid of somebody in your organization who's performing really, really well, but is not aligned. And that is even further exacerbated if that person is your top salesperson. What do you do if your top salesperson is just a dick? <laughs> As Alon was sharing, who came to mind? Are they a past employee or a current employee? This series is all about learning from the lessons of others. More specifically, learning from the successes and failures that Alon Reyes, CEO of Corp, has experienced over the last 20 years. Hiring is such an important factor in business growth that Alon and I have actually created a seven-part in-depth series about exactly this. This series can be found at racecorp.com. To whet your appetite for that series, let's rejoin Alon here. Having worked with many, many entrepreneurs over the last 20 years, I think one of the biggest mistakes that's easy to fix is the role description or the job description. At least 80% of small businesses that I've been exposed to have a team of you know, one to even 20 people that don't have job descriptions. There's zero job description. They've got a title, but there's no signed job description. And why that's important is because when you are hiring somebody and start to create the job description, you're starting to think quite specifically about what you want that individual to do. There's two types of job descriptions. There's job descriptions for people who are in roles that already exist, and there are job descriptions of people in roles that you are newly creating. In my experience, you've got to approach these two slightly differently. In job descriptions of roles that are already in existence, when that individual leaves your organization, there's a huge opportunity to fix, adapt, 
change that job description based on all the learning that you've had whilst that person was in that role. And what I see is that organizations that do have these job descriptions and bring on the second person or the third person into that role and do not make those changes tend to have a higher exit rate of individuals in that role because they are not learning from the mistakes. They are not learning from the changes in what the role has become over the years and they're being lazy quite blatantly. They're being lazy and just using the job description that's in the file that they used three years ago. Every time somebody exits, that should trigger the process of re-looking at the job description and fixing it, adapting it, improving it to ensure that it's more relevant now to what that job has become. And you see all jobs adapt. There's new technology, the business moves in different directions, the requirements of the business are different, and so the job description should change. And if you are using a job description that was created three years ago for somebody who's coming into their job right now, you are doing yourself and that individual a disservice. And that's going to end in tears. Do you fall into that 80% of small businesses with employees with titles but no job description? And here's an even more interesting and possibly revealing question, especially as we consider scaling our businesses. Do you have a job description? Is your role clearly set out and defined? The second type of job description, the one where you are describing a job that is newly created, the role has never been performed before, is in my opinion far more scary. I always say to individuals coming into new roles that we're really not good at this. My experience has been that there's a 50-50 chance you'll make it because I don't know what I want really and so I'm going to be very bad at describing this role to you. But I've done my level best in describing what I see as the job and the performance criteria and what I need from this role. But I also know that because it's a new role, I don't know what I don't know. And so if you give me permission to keep adapting that job description over the next year or two so that it better fits the requirements of the business and the role, then we're both going to be in a better position. What I'm saying effectively to the new individual in the new role is work with me on this. It doesn't mean that it's a blank slate and it's completely open to interpretation. It just means that I'm putting down some structure and that structure is going to change. I wonder how Alon's 50-50 prediction of failure changes if no structure has been introduced at all. As we reflect on our businesses, I'm certain there is already a lot of room for improvement and Alon has only just begun. Let's move on to employment contracts. So once we've got the role descriptions, we move to the actual employment contract. Once again, small businesses perform really badly with employment contracts. If there was one thing I would spend money on, it would be to ensure that I've got a solid employment contract. In the South African context, we have extremely elaborate labor laws and the employment contract needs to make sure that it is legal within the context of our law. Too many disputes are lost in labor court that are explicitly related to the fact that the 
employment contract was not legal. Maybe it sounds like I'm introducing the idea of bureaucracy and red tape into your life, adding further pressure on you whilst you're trying to grow your business. But the real reason why I think this is important is because I see small businesses spending so much time in labor disputes as they are trying to scale, and all that energy and time would be better served in more productive endeavors such as sales and growing process and building strategy. And as the business grows and more and more employees are in dispute, it becomes a ceiling, it becomes a point of friction in the growth of that business. Entrepreneurs then become despondent and many actually just give up at that point. And the first offer to buy their business is taken. I'm sure we all wish we could work in an environment where a handshake and agreement meant that things were sure to get done. Unfortunately, people are duck, different, unique and complex. And as a result, we as business owners need to make provision for the risk that comes with a company staffed with duck people. All is well until it isn't. And when it isn't, that contract is going to save us a huge amount of frustration, time and ultimately cash we could be using in other more productive ways. Let's now review our recruitment processes against Alon's 20 years of experience and lesson learning. The interview process is also critical to avoiding hiring mistakes. Most small businesses have very weak recruitment process. So firstly, as I said earlier, they don't have a job description, which means they don't really know what they want. Then they look at a CV and take it for face value. And the two biggest mistakes in the recruitment process are firstly, there is no test for competency. So I look at the CV, it seems that they've got the background, they tell me wonderful things, I ask them all sorts of questions, sounds all wonderful, but I never test for competency. And so when they come into the role, they said they could do something, only to find out that they can't. So how do you test for competence? Even if somebody has 20 years of experience on their CV, it certainly does not indicate competence. And I know this because in Rayscorp, when we do competence tests, we see somebody who has worked in other organizations for five years and 10 years and even 15 years in a certain role. When we ask them to do some basic testing, we find out that they have zero capability to do that. They worked on old process or old systems that have not adapted and they certainly would not be able to perform well in our more up-to-date modern environment. So don't fall into the trap of interpreting a CV with 15 or 20 years of experience to equal competence. A competence test might be, for example, if you are employing a graphic designer to ask them to design something, give them a written brief, give them a certain time period to do that in and see what comes out. So now what I'm introducing is the concept of speed or efficiency in your testing because somebody might be very good at something but incredibly slow and that is also somebody you don't want in your organization. But in another role, you might want somebody who's far more accurate and time is not that relevant. 
you've got to adapt your competency testing for the, the role and what you're specifically looking for in that role, including the level of accuracy, level of creativity, and the level of speed that you require for that role. Of course, in many roles today, there's a lot of technical competency. You can't have somebody, for example, in finance who has no idea how to use Excel and is still working on Lotus 1, 2, 3 because they've got the version from 1989. You can't have somebody in a sales management role that has never used a CRM and has been managing their team on Excel or a piece of paper. So testing for competencies is critical to ensure that who you are letting into the business is more likely to succeed and to be appropriate for the role and requirements that you have. Another big mistake that small businesses make is not including background checks in their recruitment process. The big trick that people use on their CVs is to actually provide you with their friends or their colleagues that they worked with at an organization as their reference points. I think you need to have a very, I would go as far as saying cynical view of what you are reading in terms of who they are providing as references. And rather, make sure that when you call the organization, try and find out from the organization beforehand who heads up that department or that division first before you actually look at the name and phone number on the CV. I would go as far as saying 70 to 80% of the references that we have seen on our CVs are completely ineffective. In other words, they are planted there by the person who's providing you with their CV as people that, that they know will give them good references. They will not be honest references. So take the time, take the effort to do the research first to find out who that person really reported to and call them. Take your time to ask questions such as, would you hire this person back? What were the reasons for that person leaving? What were that person's growth opportunities? What were they really good at? Try and really understand the person you are interviewing from the perspective of their previous manager or boss. I then asked Alon what he spends the majority of his time doing now as he heads up an organization that has an HR department that takes care of much of this. I wanted to know what we need to look ahead to. His answer was short and informative. A huge amount of my time is taken up by people issues. In the past, that time mainly comprised of disputes. Now, it's about performance management and about curating my team, ensuring that those who are not performing are given the opportunity to perform, and those that are not aligned are given the opportunity to align or to be exited. Disputes, performance, and alignment. Are you able to see how near impossible it would be for Alon to do this if the documents and processes he has described up to now were not in place? Do you see where we have to go and why? I would like to add a flow code concept into this podcast. Flow code, of course, being a scale methodology that we use at RaceCorp. And it looks at the people part of your business in deep detail because you cannot scale your business if you do not have the right people or you're spending a huge amount of your time 
exiting bad employees and recruiting bad employees. It's called the fail early metric. And the fail early metric is a concept that says unemotionally, if an individual joins our organization in this role, how would I know that they are competent or not competent quite early? What are the standards that they have to achieve within the first, second, and third month of being in that role that would give me a very good clue as to whether I've hired correctly or incorrectly? Spend time thinking about this. Because the context generally is that somebody coming into your organization is learning about your organization, is learning about the way that you do things, your processes, perhaps even your industry. So there's a huge learning curve that is required. That means that individual will be less productive in the first month than in the second month than in the third month. So the fail early metric is trying to give a very honest view of the expectations you have for that individual in the first three months. At the point of employing that individual, you need to discuss the fail early metric or matrices, more importantly, with that individual and say, this is my expectation of you. And this is why it's realistic. So for example, if a new person comes into a sales role, you can't expect them in month one to hit their sales target that they would be expected to hit in month six. They're going to come in, they need to learn the product, the systems, the business approach. And so they might start off, instead of your target being 100, it might start off that in month one, your expectation is zero or your expectation is five. In month two, you certainly would expect it to move up to 15, month three to 50. So that by month six, they should be up to speed at the required 100 target, whatever the target is that you've set. So the fail early metric is effectively waypoints on the road to hitting the required productivity or level of output that you require for that role. And then manage that like a demon. If you said 10 and that person hits 9, manage that. If you said 30 or 45 in month 2 and they hit 40, manage that. And that goes to qualitative measures as well. You want to fail early. If this individual is not the person that you thought they should be, then rather have that discussion now and then go through performance management to exit them. As I said when we started this podcast, that hiring mistakes is something that you are never going to get rid of, but you're going to have to manage the level of mistakes that you make as the business grows. Good people go bad, bad people go good. But what you're trying to ensure is that the people that you are allowing into your organization, and notice the words, allowing into your organization, are the right people who can perform and are aligned culturally to what you are trying to achieve. If they are not, have the strength to manage those individuals out of the organization early. And the only way you can do that is if you have a legal basis for that, which is the performance contract, which is your fail early metrics. Disputes, performance, and alignment. Head over to racecorp.com where you'll find similar resources to this one and also the opportunity to sign up for notifications to stay updated on new releases. 
In addition to this, follow RaceCorp on your favorite social media platforms where you'll find additional updates about this podcast series and others we are producing. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and I'll see you in the next lesson.